Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases, as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. All right, you guys asked me for this topic and it's a topic that's important to me. So here we go. I'm going to talk about running quote-unquote reactive dogs uh, in dog agility. So I'm going to be specifically talking about agility today, but everything that I'm going to say applies to all sports. And the first thing we need to do is define reactive because technically reactive should be all of us. It just means that we're alive. It just means that we're reacting to the environment. So really it's kind of shorthand for overreactive um, and it can be based at a certain stimulus usually so it's usually kind of dog directed or stranger directed and to be honest it is a euphemism for aggressive behavior now please do not send me angry emails it is a euphemism for aggressive behavior barking and lunging are aggressive acts and whether or not you think your dog would bite somebody else is irrelevant because they are they are performing behaviors that exist on the spectrum of aggressive behaviors. Now, if you're going to say, my dog's reactive, but he's friendly, then I'm going to say your dog has inappropriate um, skills socially. So your dog might be what we call hypersocial, so overly interested in other dogs or people. Um, or your dog might just be frustrated out of its mind by being on a leash around other dogs because it thinks that all other dogs are its plaything. Regardless, if it's barking and lunging or snarling and snapping, these are aggressive behaviors. So we're talking about running dogs that exhibit some level of aggressive behaviors socially. Usually this is dog-directed, but I'm going to be talking about human-directed aggressive behaviors as well. And, you know, it's all behaviors that I categorize as barky-lungy, essentially. And they could be bitey-lungy, too, um, if the trigger is close enough. So our focus is going to be on these behaviors that exist on an aggressive kind of spectrum. And... That's what we're going to be talking about today. So I think if you've got a dog that falls under this category, that they exhibit these behaviors towards other dogs or people, you have some questions, some hard questions that you need to ask yourself. And I would start with, what will happen if another dog runs into the ring while your dog is running? So that's one question to ask because that's something that I've seen happen. Now, I've seen it happen a handful of times in the almost 20 years that I've been in this sport. So it's not like it's going to happen every weekend and it's not like it's guaranteed to happen to your dog and that's good, but it's something that could happen. So it needs to be considered. 
So what happens if another dog enters the ring? What happens if the judge approaches my dog? Um, I have, judges should not approach and try to touch your dog. But I, again, in 20 years, I've seen it happen. Probably almost as many times as I've seen another dog run into the ring. So that could happen. Um, What is going to happen if the dog that's running ahead of me gets away from their handler and runs over to my dog? What is going to happen if the dog that is running after me does the same thing, gets out of control away from the handler and towards my dog? Because at some point during every run, there are two dogs in the ring, um, both at the beginning and at the end, if you're going in on time. So if you're entering the ring on time, the other dog is just finishing, is not on leash yet. And if you are, if the next person after you is in on time, they are in there before your dog is finished and before they're on leash. So you need to ask, you know, is that going to be okay? Can my dog actually handle that? And if you don't know the answer, then I would encourage you to find out in more controlled settings. So test it in training scenarios. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm also going to say there are deal breakers. Um, there are dogs that should not be trialing if they exhibit these behaviors because I'm, I'm of the belief that dogs with these behavior, with these behaviors kind of in their repertoire can be trialed safely if some precautions are taken, but there are going to be deal breakers. There are dogs that don't really have any business being in that environment. If you have to ask for special treatment, so meaning in that scenario that I was saying If it isn't okay that the person behind you come in on time because your dog will leave work and go to their dog and act aggressive, I would say your dog should not be entered in the trial. So if your dog cannot be participating in the trial the way that the trial is normally supposed to run, they shouldn't be there. Now, asking for a little bit of space So maybe you are next to, maybe you're waiting to go in and the person behind you is standing a little bit too close with their dog. That's not asking for special treatment, in my opinion. That's just asking for a little bit of space for you and your dog for any given reason. You might ask for that because your dog is really friendly and you don't want your dog focusing on the other dog. You might ask for that just because you need some breathing room. I do right before I'm going in. I don't want a person right behind me. Um... You know, you just turning around and saying, hey, will you give me just a couple more feet of space is absolutely not asking for special treatment and is 100% fair, in my opinion. So um, that's fine. But turning the person behind you and saying, hey, can you just make sure my leash is fully on before you come in the ring is asking for special treatment. You could be asking that person to do something that's really uncomfortable for them because that is breaking the rules. The ring steward is supposed to usher everybody in on time. So now you're asking the gate steward to break the rules and the person behind you to break the rules. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't care that much about rules, but I do care about the fact that I don't, it's not okay for me to ask somebody to do something that makes them uncomfortable. And so if it makes the person behind me uncomfortable to break those rules, that's not fair for me to ask. So needing to ask for that special treatment, um, that's, that's where I would say your dog should not be trialing. Now I'm not saying that's forever, but I am saying, you know, there's a training fix for that. And the training fix is not just keep trialing. And we're going to talk a little bit about the training fixes in a little while, but so if you have to ask for special treatment other than just a little bit of space at the entry and the exit, I don't think you should be there. Um, 
if your dog has a bite history that involves doing damage to other dogs or people, then you probably shouldn't be there. So if the dog has bitten another dog and caused damage, um, then that's really something to think hard about. The reason is we kind of know that um, dogs, generally speaking, commit the same kind of level of bite every time they bite. You know, all things can, all things being the same. So if my dog approaches, let's say, I, you know, I got bombarded the other day. This is a true story by um, this mixed breed dog on a trail. The lady had a couple of labs and then she had this um, really gregarious, funny, I think it was like an Aussie poodle cross um, dog that was just really in your face with my dogs. My dogs handled him really well. Um but there was, you know, maybe a little bit of snarling from one of my dogs, which was appropriate and warranted. But let's say in that same scenario, my dog was going to make that dog need to go to the veterinarian, was going to really lay into that dog and make them need to go to the veterinarian. Now we're having a different conversation. Now we're having a, a talk about a dog that has and will cause damage. So now, if we go back up to that question of what happens if another dog comes into the ring with my dog, if there's a potential for my dog, if there's this good, strong potential for my dog to cause bodily harm to that dog, then I maybe need to be doing some long, hard considerations about what I'm doing having my dog in that environment. Because that's also probably a dog that should be muzzled on off-leash hikes or even on-leash hikes. Because as we have discussed on the podcast before, Joe Schmo is never going to be able to recall his Labradoodle. That is not going to happen. So you're, you're responsible for your end of things because you can't count on the public to be responsible for their end of theirs. So if you have a dog that's going to do damage to said Labradoodle, that dog should be in a muzzle. Um, one of my dogs could. She has never actually um, done damage to another dog, but she could. And um, her reactions tend to be bigger than necessary, basically on a trail, in my opinion, which is why she would wear a muzzle in that situation. None of my other dogs required a muzzle in that situation, even though there may have been some snarling and snapping, nobody is causing any damage. And all of this is dog norm. This is all normal dog behavior as far as I'm concerned. So if your dog has caused injurious uh, damage to dogs or people, then you want to be really thinking about whether this is a safe environment to have your dog in or not. Because things happen in agility trials that are unexpected, as we all know. So those would be kind of my deal breakers. And now let's talk about what you can do better. So let's say you've got this dog. You've got a dog that's a little barky lungy, maybe a little uncomfortable with other dogs, a little uncomfortable with people. Um, I'm going to say that in my work with my private clientele and also in my workshops and classes, I run into a lot of dogs that are under socialized to other dogs. So they are uncomfortable with other dogs, period. And it makes doing dog agility or other dog sports really hard for them because dog agility is a lot of other dogs. And it tends to be a lot of other dogs that are kind of corked out of their minds. So they're kind of going crazy. And it's just, you know, if this dog were in a behavior modification program, we'd try to expose him to dogs that were very calm and neutral at first. And that is the opposite of what dog agility is. So 
I do think that a lot of these dogs can compete successfully. And in fact, I know a lot of these dogs compete successfully. There are plenty of dogs that I could name right now that I obviously won't name, but that I could name right now um, who I would not trust off leash in a field with my dog, but they're there at trials doing agility and doing it perfectly fine and being beautifully managed by their people. And they do not make me nervous at all. And then there are some who do make me nervous. Um, I definitely have a short list in my head of dogs that I don't enter the ring until that dog is on leash under, under control, even though that's breaking a rule. Again, I don't care that much about rules. I care about keeping my dog safe. Um, and I just tell the gate steward, listen, I'll take it from the judge. You don't have to worry about it, but I'm not going in until that dog is on leash. Generally speaking, everybody kind of knows that dog and everybody's kind of already doing that. And I just think that you don't really have any business being that dog, <laughs> um, but they're there, right? And we all kind of know that. So I think this can be done well and I think it can be done poorly. So here's how I think you can do it well. Train default attention, train your dog that if another dog or a person approaches them, they should look at you immediately. I call this training Mind Your Beeswax. I have a whole protocol for it. Um, I go over it in depth in two of my classes. I go over it in Teenage Tyrants, um, which is coming up in the February term in 2020. And I also go over it in the whole picture, which is available as a prerequisite course pretty much every term because it's a prerequisite for uh, a suggested prereq for most of my classes. So I go over it in both of those classes. I'm also going to be teaching it at Fenzie Dog Sports Academy uh, sports camp this summer in June. Why is it everywhere? Because it's so important to me that my dog learns to default pay attention to me in the face of social interactions. Now, it's not something I teach little baby puppies because I want little baby puppies to learn to have varied social experiences. And I, I like to socialize early, often, and big. I don't, I don't, not one of those sport people who wants to keep my puppy isolated. Um, I teach it to them a little bit later once I know that they're friendly, essentially. Or I'll teach it right away if they're not friendly or they're scared. So train default attention. You also want to train your entry and exit routines to a science, you guys. Train it to the letter. You want to have a very, very well-trained entry routine so that your dog knows for sure exactly what's going to happen when they walk in that ring and they're paying attention to nothing but you. So the fact that the other dog is finishing their run is a non-issue to them. Little caveat on that, you got to keep one eye on that dog, the dog running in the ring, right? If it's a dog problem that your dog has. Because shit happens as we've talked about and if that dog sees your dog and leaves work and starts to come over it is your responsibility to keep everybody safe so there's a little additional behavior you could train there you could train your dog to hop up in your arms if they're small enough um and small enough for me would be like all of my border collies could do that um but you know, or you could train them a chin rest behavior, some kind of restraint behavior. Like you, you want to work on what to do if something like that occurs so that you are not left in the dark. And I would actually practice it. Like you go in, you set up, you're starting to take your leash off and then immediately ask your dog for something else, like to hop into your arms or put their feet up on the uh, ring gating um, if it's solid or, you know, do a nose touch, like immediately redirect and ask for something else and then reinforce and go back to what you're doing so that the dog is prepared for it. So that's your entry. Your exit should be trained 
you know, this is this would be great for everybody. So end of run routines are really, really important. Uh, my friend Megan Foster, I believe, is going to be teaching those at uh, Fenzy Dog Sports Academy camp in June. And um, it's just so vital, you guys, to train your dog exactly what's going to happen at the end of the run, exactly how to get to their reinforcers. So Felix is working on this right now, and all the little pieces are locate your leash, participate in being having your leash put on and then find your stash on cue and the stash is cookies or a ball that I have put outside of the ring and that he knows is there so training all these little pieces and then you back chain the pieces essentially and train it put as much work into it or more that you put into your dog walk contact or your weave pulls because it does matter that much to your performance um and especially if your dog has any kind of um, aggressive types of behaviors in their repertoire, you need those pieces trained because those, as my friend Shade Whitesell calls them, the spaces in between the competition behaviors, that's where shit's going to go wrong with your, um, with your dog's aggressive stuff. So you really want to train that stuff as much as you train anything else or more so your dog is very very clear on those things um because clarity is also the enemy of those aggressive types of behaviors the dogs act aggressive when they require distance from a trigger and they don't know how else to get it that's what that's when they're aggressive so help them to understand we we leash up and we get out of the ring and we do it in xyz order and we do it that way every single time and they will know exactly what they're doing and they won't think that they need to stop and worry about the dog coming in because they know exactly what their path to reinforcement is and then in between times you guys create in your car it actually makes my skin crawl when i walk past a crate in a trial and the dog inside the crate goes apeshit barking and you know charging the front of the crate the reason it makes my skin crawl is not because you know not because it startles me although it usually does but is because that poor dog in that crate is feeling so unsafe inside a box that he has to lash out aggressively it's not fair and it's not a good thing so if you have to crate inside which I'm just going to argue you probably don't um, I used to crate in my car 365 days a year in Colorado and it gets extremely hot and extremely cold in Colorado. Um, you just need, you know, proper equipment and you can pull it off. And then also when it was over 100 degrees, we just didn't go because it was going to be miserable for all of us anyway because none of the buildings were climate controlled either. Um, you know, Coloradans, for some reason, don't believe in air conditioning. Hopefully things are changing because it is getting hotter <laughs> and hotter every year. Um, but so basically, create in your car so that your dog has peace. If you can't create in your car, take great lengths to be sure they have peace in their crate. Put an X pen around your crate and then drape blankets over everything so that and then you know put a fan on them even if it's cold so that you're drowning out some of the noise and you're keeping them you're basically you have to provide them sanctuary so that they're not on edge the entire day it is so so important and if they are lunging at every dog that walks past their crate all they're doing is practicing aggressive behavior in that in that context and every time they do it, it gets reinforced because every time they do it, the person removes the dog that was bothering them from the front of the crate 
And you may think it's not getting reinforced because you yell at them or you hit the top of the crate or you see other people yell at them. It still is because what they wanted to happen is still happening. The other dog goes away. And the yelling is just noise, typically. And probably upsetting the other dogs that are crated nearby, which is why I don't like to see that either. And then, you know, use use something on your dog to help you control their head. Um, the I compete in UKI, USDAA, and AKC, and AKC has finally also gotten on this train. In all three of those, you are allowed to use a head collar or gentle leader. Um, I don't know about some of the organizations or whether or not that's allowed, but if I have a dog that is going to lash out aggressively, potentially between runs, so on my way from the crate to the gate, I'm going to have the dog on a gentle leader. Um, I'm, that's the same for if my dog is just hypersocial and trying to get to everybody. It's a nice, easy way for you to control them and keep them next to you. Obviously, you need to train it. You need to condition it. You need to help them feel comfortable in it. But it is probably the best way to go. And um, there are some really cool ones that are like a two-in-one leash and gentle leader situation that are great for in and out of the ring because they're really easy on and off, much easier than your standard head collar. Um, and the, I, I should have looked this up before I recorded, but then the name of that, um, is escaping me right now. But if you just search two in one head collar and leash, you will find it. There are, there are lots of different ones. Um, we got ours in, when we were in Finland watching world championships. So it's a European country, company and we really, really like it. And pretty much everybody in England, um, that was at my seminars there was using them as well. And if you know me, you know that, like, I'm not actually a fan of that tool. I don't like head collars in general. Um, however, I do think they're necessary sometimes, and this is one of those times where I think they're probably the best call. So to recap, the things that you can do better would be to train default attention, train your entry and exit routines right down to the letter, create out of your car or some other kind of um, very quiet, out-of-the-way space, and use a gentle leader. And then also you guys train for the unexpected. Set it up in training. Set up a dog running across the ring in training. Do it with a dog that your dog knows so that everybody's safe. Um, but set it up, see what happens. Set up the judge straight up approaching your dog on a table with it being your trainer. And you know, have a plan for those things and train your dog to be able to tolerate those things and, you know, make it weird. Go, go above and beyond. Have a bunch of weird stuff happen while your dog's running agility to proof their ability to stay on course with you. And then just kind of a final point. Sometimes it's not fair to compete these dogs because sometimes they're so uncomfortable that you're actually affecting their quality of life by asking them to be in those situations. And that's something that was true of my dog, Kelso. Kelso, let's see, he lived to be 14. Um, I got him when I was a teenager. And so, and I trialed him until he was nine. And I would like to think that the trainer I am today would have let him just be a couch dog and a hiking dog and not do trials at all. He was, he got better over the course of the career as, as I got smarter and I got better. But generally speaking, I think agility trials were more stress for him than they were worth. 
Um, and they probably, probably shortened his life, to be honest. Um, and that's, that's hard for me to accept and admit. I have to give myself a little compassion and say that I didn't know any better. And honestly, neither did my mentors. Um, and now that I do know better, I, I do better and I teach people to do better by their dogs. But just hear it from me, you guys, you don't want to look back on their life and wish you hadn't made them compete because it hurts. And none of the titles that he got are, you know, outweigh that guilt. So just know that and know that, you know, there are other sports now that are easier for dogs that have problems with other dogs. Kelsa was pretty severely dog aggressive. Um, nose work didn't exist at the time, but it would have been a great sport for him because he wouldn't have had to deal with any other dogs and could have just done his thing. He did better in obedience where the dogs were a lot more controlled than agility. And so he did have a nice long obedience career that I don't regret. Um, but agility was too hard for him. And I guess my only kind of piece that I don't feel guilty about is I never made him travel to do agility and I never made him go to nationals or any kind of big events like that because I knew that he couldn't handle that. Um, but basically know when what you're asking your dog to do is simply not fair and make that choice before, basically before it's too late for you to make that choice. All right, a couple of Patreon questions for you guys. Suzanne asks, reinforcement strategies for a sport dog prospect who used to be a willing worker for food and toys whose drive appears to have been impacted by the side effects of a behavior medication. She says, of note, the offending medication is no longer in use uh, for about six months now, and the dog is under the supervision and care of a veterinary behaviorist and a behavior trainer. And also the behavior being treated is not something that is seen in training. And Suzanne, I really appreciate all that information because it helps me to answer your question. Uh, she goes on to ask, is all hope lost? Is this a training situation and or additional discussions that needs to be had with our behavior team? So awesome question and a unique question and something that I have maybe only experienced once or twice in my career, but certainly something that happens is that we choose a medication to help us with um, some kind of behavior route and it affects more than just the behavior and it might affect performance. Um, in the most extreme case, I had a client dog who was on an, an SSRI, which is an antidepressant for some in the home aggression behaviors. The agility instructor who was not me, um, really encouraged the owner to get the dog off the medication because the dog appeared slower and less drivey on the medication. Dog was taken off the medication. Dog was ultimately euthanized. Um, and that makes me, that makes me very unhappy. Uh, very, very upset to recall. And so I like Suzanne that you are working so hard with your team and that you were clear that this is not a behavior problem that shows up in training or is actually directly affecting performance. My first question would be, is the dog on a different drug of the same class? Because if the dog's just off meds, that's one thing, but if the dog's on a different drug of the same class, um, 
then exploring a drug outside of that class might be something that I would do with my veterinary behavior team. Um, but generally speaking, I would say you've got to just build back up the interest in those reinforcers. So if the dog loses, starts to lose interest in, you know, food or toys on the medication and that actually persists off the medication, which is what you're reporting, then I would say we've got, we no longer have the physical component causing the problem, but we have a learning component here now. And so it is a training situation. What I would do is treat this like a brand new dog who doesn't know anything about reinforcers. And I would teach some ritualized reinforcement patterns. Ritualized reinforcement is basically where you it's basically predictable reinforcement and it makes the reinforcers more powerful when the dog can predict them. Click then treat is a ritual. That's ritualized reinforcement. It's why um, that that's actually so much more powerful than just handing the dog food. I would train all kinds of rituals around anything the dog actually does care about. Obviously the dog is still eating, um, because otherwise she would be dead. So build up food as a reinforcer by ritualizing it. Make it important. Hide it. Get the dog interested and excited. And then run over and find it together. Things like that. Um, teaching the dog a cue that means I'm about to throw the food. So say search, pause, and then toss the food. So the dog starts to get um, some bigger feelings about the fact that the food's going to appear because you're going to throw it. You know, things like that. And then as far as toys are concerned, I think way too often we teach toy play by pushing our dogs into a kind of uncomfortable state. So we push on them, we slap at them, we bat the toy on the ground, we, we kind of put them in a crazy state um, to get them to want to bite that toy, often just out of frustration, I think. Um, sometimes even out of anger. So getting back to play, saying what kind of play does this dog like? Does she like to bat around a squeaky toy? Um, you know, squeak, fuzzy, squeaky thing? Or does she like to chase a tennis ball? Like what does she like? And then building, building that up to make it something that can work for you by attaching a marker system and by ritualizing it is essentially what I would do. It can also be further discussed with your behavior team, especially if the dog is still on a drug of the same class um, that the offending drug was. So that's definitely something that you, you could talk to about them, but I would essentially go, okay, my reinforcers have lost some value. I need to build some value back into them to make them important to you. And I would stop trying to do other training until the reinforcers matter because you can really damage your other training if you're asking her to do things for things that she doesn't actually care about, if that makes sense. Thank you so much for your question, Suzanne. And last one for this week, this is from Erin. She says, I'd love to know what verbal cues you have for agility, both equipment specific and handling wise. I've been watching all the amazing videos going around regarding clear communication with reinforcement and jumping and I'm both enthralled and a little overwhelmed. What do you have as a verbal cue? What's essential and what's flashy, but not entirely necessary? Oh boy, do you hear the can of worms opening? I hear a can of worms opening. Um, I think I, I think what I want to make very, very clear is that this is my current opinion as far as the trainer I am today. 
and it could change tomorrow. It could change next week. Um, basically, number one, I think dogs do not pick up verbal cues as being the most salient cue until we teach them to. So verbal cueing is a concept that we have to teach them that they don't inherently understand. They don't come hardwired with that. And because we're a verbal species, we put a lot of importance on verbal cueing that oftentimes doesn't actually matter that much. In my sport of dog agility, your physical handling cues are the are going to be the most natural and the most salient to your dog. So where I would teach a verbal is when I know that sometimes my physical handling cues are not going to be there, not going to be good enough, and I need a verbal cue that's going to outweigh my physical cue, and then I'm going to actively train that verbal cue to outweigh anything else that's going on so the dog reads it as the utmost importance. So the verbal cues that matter to me would be um, obstacle cues for obstacles that I need that dog to seek out easily on verbal. So that would be like my weave pulls have to have a, a cue attached that comes from my mouth because I need the dog to be able to find them on that verbal alone. There's going to be competing motivators. There's going to be a tunnel right there. There's going to be a jump right there. I need the dog to find the weave pull entry on my cue, no matter what else is going on. So that's, that's probably my biggest, most important verbal. And then I train a verbal throttle cue as well, which is to um, come towards me and take the obstacle from the takeoff side again. So basically they take off and take something and they, you know, if I want them to come towards me and take the next thing from the same takeoff space or same takeoff side, I'm not explaining this well, um, that's going to be a throttle and I'm going to use a verbal for that. Those are kind of my two really big important ones. I also have verbals for my contact behaviors. Um, I do have a verbal jump cue. I don't stress a whole lot. I, I have a verbal backside cue and I think that's really important. I don't want only handling to cue a backside jump because A, sometimes I'm not going to get there and I need that verbal to be the tiebreaker. And B, I don't want the dog to take the backside if I didn't say take the backside. I'm seeing more and more paths um, showing the dog the backside on courses and the dog going, oh yeah, we do these all the time, here's a backside, and I want the dog to understand if I didn't say your backside cue, I want you to take the front side. Um, those are the important ones to me right now. I think just like everything else, you've got to train what matters to you. So if you are um, a super fast athletic person and you're always going to get there, then don't worry that much about training the verbals. If you're not, then you're probably going to need to train more verbals. But I think it's really important to get very good at your handling to make sure that your handling is actually telling the dog what you think you're telling the dog with that verbal. Because if your body is not supporting what your mouth is saying and you haven't trained the dog deliberately to listen to what your mouth is saying, no matter what your body is saying, then you're still going to get in trouble. Um, and then it's really important, I mentioned in a previous episode that I was going to put the cliff notes of queuing video up in Patreon. And I did that. And it's important to understand how to attach a verbal cue to a behavior efficiently and well. So your dog actually understands it. It's not something that's being talked about a whole lot 
um, in the sport of agility, even by the people who are training a lot of verbals. So it's something to know well and teach your dog well the concept of before you try to teach um, verbal cues in context, in the context of agility. Thank you everyone for your questions and I look forward to answering more next time. Hey everybody, hang out one second. I wanna tell you about the brand new Cog Dog Classroom. This is a place where I'm going to be offering self-study courses for things like crate training, wellness, reactivity, puppies, and more. Right now we've got Happy Crating up there. It's a webinar that you can buy and watch anytime to help you with your crate training. And I've also got my Four Steps to Behavioral Wellness course, which is a brand new imagining of the Four Steps concept. It comes with a video lecture from me as well as a bunch of written content. So. I hope that you'll go check out Cog Dog Classroom. You know the link is in the show notes.